Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner as they discuss living within a universe story. Mary Evelyn Tucker, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Michael. Wonderful to be here. One of our very earliest New School conversations was with you about 10 years ago, with you and your husband, John Grimm, by telephone. And uh, so uh, you are returning as opposed to being a newcomer, but this is the first time we've had you in person. Lovely. But uh, I remember well, you and I were talking before we began, that there were two retreats that you were part of here. I think you remember at least one of them where you brought Thomas Berry with you to Commonweal. And uh, he sat in the living room over at Pacific House with us. And I just, I remember that he came twice just because it was an honor that he came the first time. It was astonishing that he came the second time. And so I just uh, remember this extraordinary man. Yes. Yeah. So we agreed, uh, you were willing to do this with me, that one of the formats that we use here at the New School is what I call spiritual biography, which is really asking someone that I respect and admire a great deal how they came to be where they are. And so we agreed that that's what we would do today, and we'll do it uh, within two hours. Uh, we hope to have a little time for questions at the end, but the real purpose is to get a high-quality video and podcast of your spiritual biography. So let's start with your current work. I'll just start with a brief uh, description from your Yale uh, biography. Mary Evelyn Tucker is a senior lecturer and research scholar at Yale University, where she has appointments in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, as well as the Divinity School and the Department of Religious Studies. She teaches the joint MA program in Religion and Ecology and directs the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale with her husband, John Grimm. Her special area of study is Asian religions, um, and she's done a lot uh, of uh, work on that. Um, her concern with the growing environmental crisis, especially in Asia, led uh, to her to organize with John Grimm a series of 10 conferences on world religions and ecology at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard from 95 to 98. Together, they are series editors of the 10 volumes of the conferences distributed by Harvard University Press. Press. And after the conference series, she and Grimm founded the Forum on Religion and Ecology uh, at a culminating conference at the UN in 1998. They now direct the forum at Yale, where they also teach religion and ecology. Um, and then a whole set of books that you have um, done together or separately. Uh, Tucker and Grimm studied world religions with Thomas Berry in graduate school and worked closely with him for 30 years. They are the managing trustees of the Thomas Berry Foundation. Tucker edited several of Berry's books, The Great Work in 99, Evening Thoughts in 2006, The Sacred Universe in 2009, and with Grimm, The Christian Future and the Fate of the Earth, 2009 and Thomas Berry Selected Writings on the Earth Community, 2014. And you've just finished a biography, just sent out the 12 chapters on Berry. Uh, 
Um, but as we were talking, uh, and I knew this lineage a little bit, but I didn't know the sequence. Really, the sequence for me, for you, is uh, Teilhard de Chardin, Thomas Berry, Brian Swim, and then your work with John Grimm. So you have a little, it's not called an acronym, but what's one of those memes that you can remember? It goes, uh, uh, Teilhard, Berry, Swim, Tucker, Grimm, right? Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. So it's a nice little, it's a memnonic, that's the word I was yeah. looking for. Yeah. Teilhard, Berry, Swim, Tucker, Grimm. So that's just kind of a brief capsule for people. Uh, and... Um, so let's start with your current work and the extraordinary commitment you've made to this marvelous book, Journey of the Universe, as well as the film about it. Um, and uh, I, I want to start with a very specific question. I think this book is just so elegant. It's so beautifully done. And it, it's this incredible creative living imagining of the universe story as a story filled with wonder and awe that can be equally read by people of a spiritual or religious orientation, but also completely secular people who find awe in completely scientific and secular ways. How long did it take you and Brian Swim to write this book? Well, the whole project, the film, the book, the conversations, curriculum, website, took 10 years. Right. So, um, but the book was uh, the starting point in a lot of ways, although it was the script for the film and then and the book. Uh-huh. So, those are slightly different, yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. um, but that took many years. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, but I think you've described it beautifully that uh, Journey of the Universe is an effort to bring us into this deep time, this mm -hmm. evolving universe, mm -hmm. the sense we're part of something unfolding, containing us, supporting mm -hmm. us, and, um, and in many ways very new in its scientific iteration. Mm -hmm. Of course, traditional peoples and all world religions have cosmologies mm -hmm. of origin and unfolding and where we belong, mm -hmm. how we got here. But so the writing of this was an attempt to take um, the best of modern science, if you will, the best of evolutionary understanding that we have had. And that's, again, I keep wanting to emphasize, fairly new, but to take that um, and fuse it with, marry it with a poetic, and imaginative sensibility. So every chapter has a scientific idea, uh, but a metaphor so that the human mind can enter into it. And then, uh, so what? You know, what does this mean for us as humans? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a new genre in certain ways, and, and some people, uh, a lot of people love this book, and it's been translated into many languages, um, which is wonderful. But um, it's not science, it's not a nova. Mm -hmm. um, type of presentation, and it's not uh, just poetry. Lauren Isley comes to mind mm -hmm. as the person who did this beautifully, and our editor at Yale um, <laughs> gave us great joy when she took the manuscript and she was uh, flipping through it, and she said, this reminds me of Lauren Isley. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it was a great gift mm. to us. And uh, um, the film got an Emmy mm -hmm. for the best documentary. 
In Northern California, there's regional MEs. And how how widely distributed has the film and the conversations and the... um, the whole enterprise with the book been? How, how far has it gone out? Well, you know, we've been quite lucky, I have to say, for two academics, three of us, John and Brian and myself, um, who had never made a film and mm-hmm. we won't probably make another film because mm-hmm. it was so hugely demanding. Mm-hmm. But we've been fortunate, and I, I really do feel it's because the universe wants it's right. story to be told, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So we're just vehicles for something much, much larger. Mm-hmm. So we were extremely fortunate. This is why we love Northern California and the energy here. But KQED, you know, mm-hmm. picked it up. And every part of this journey has an amazing thing. There's a woman there who got it. Mm-hmm. Six months later, she had moved on. You know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of amazing. She got it. And then national PBS got it and picked it up, which, again, was a great gift. So that was on PBS for three years. So that's millions of people watched it um, over those that period. We Then we were able to get it onto Netflix. It's on Amazon Streaming. It's been on Curiosity Stream and so on. All in these very uh, mom and pop, you know, two distributors in New York who just believed in it and helped do it. And then the... the I think, again, we didn't ask to do this, but our dean at Yale really got this. He's a great uh, paleobotanist, so he understands deep time, and he understands how he shows this one astounding opening of a hundred million year old plant that just blows you away. Mm-hmm. You see, So he understands what it means to be... In, even in terms of our imagination and our knowing to be part of this. So he asked us to do um, online classes. And so we've uh, created these MOOCs, Massive mm-hmm. Open Online mm-hmm. Classes, with Coursera. So mm-hmm. it's, again, in West Coast, East Coast, Yale Coursera mm-hmm. courses on the film and the book and the conversations. And those, in a year and a half, have had about 20,000 people watching mm-hmm. them. And they're free with the audit. And mm-hmm. then... We had a Fulbright professor from Taiwan who was in our class, and he said, this is great. Can I show them in my class? And of course, this is all open source. And we took this to Yale Teaching and Learning Center, and um, they said, well, let's translate them into Chinese. Mm. So they've translated these courses into Chinese, and the film is dubbed um, as well. And so, mm. so little by little, but I think we're going to make an even further effort, you know, just to invite people. This is an offering for our moment, our planetary crisis, and, and just to invite people into it more and more. So I've, I've found that I've, it's one thing to write something, a book or an essay, and then it's quite another what you learn after you've written it. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned from this 10-year immersion in the journey of the universe that you didn't know when, when you were writing the book? That's a great question. And I should really back up and say for Thomas Berry and Brian Swim to write the first uh, literary, the first book, mm-hmm. the universe story book mm-hmm. that came out in 92, that took 10 years. Because mm-hmm. Brian had to learn the science. He's a scientist mm-hmm. of the early universe. But he really spent a great deal of time here in the Bay Area with other scientists learning this, this process over time. So that's a gift beyond measure. Mm-hmm. And I should also mention Brian, who's the narrator of the film, obviously the co-writer here, um, and has carried the story part of this for 
years and years. He is indigenous, and he, he doesn't speak about that, but his father is indigenous from the Salish peoples of British Columbia. I didn't know that. No, most people don't. I didn't know that. And we began the MOOCs with this, because oh. I think it was time to say, this isn't just a white male scientist telling mm. a story. It's someone who comes out of another worldview, another universe. Um, but I really want to say this would be impossible, and we can go into this more, you know, without mm -hmm. this Teilhard and Thomas, and especially Brian, bringing the science into availability for those of us who aren't scientists. So in terms of the learning of it, you know, working with Brian was a great joy, and working with our, our editorial movie team was a great joy. Um, so I learned a lot <laughs> in both those processes, how you do take scientific ideas and make them uh, more available. Mm. And then I, I think I've learned especially it's, we've tried to hold open that space that as you put it so well, those who have a spiritual feeling for this story or mm -hmm. e ecology, those who don't, to be extremely inclusive. Because some people have said, you know, I'm just so inspired by nature by these processes. And to me, it doesn't have to be pronounced as spiritual. And this is, it wouldn't have gone on PBS if we had inserted something overtly spiritual and so on. So we really need to open up the windows and doors of mm. that, um, that space. And one of the efforts I think that's emerging is a spiritual ecology uh, movement here in Northern California. And I'm okay to say so, um, you know, Steve, and, and uh, this legacy coming from the geography of hope and trying to bring young people into that space. So universe story is a type of spiritual ecology, mm -hmm. you see, but to make it more explicit in both schools and educational systems and in the immense, immensely rich networks here will be a great gift. You know... You and I are part of a, a conversation with some friends online about the potential for the authentic collapse of Earth systems mm -hmm. through a project called the FAN Initiative, uh, faninitiative.net, uh, which lists the 12 leading challenges to the global environment and the high prospect of collapse. And, um, and so... One of the clear questions in the face of, um, I wouldn't say the probability uh, of, uh, of deep degradation and possible collapse um, is, um, can a, you know, it's a trite question in a way, but can a change in human consciousness affect the trajectory that we're on? And... Um, you know, that's a very debatable question, mm -hmm. whether a change in human consciousness is possible. Mm -hmm. And if it is possible, can it deflect the trajectory? Mm -hmm. um, but into that mix comes the central question of whether science and spirituality merging into a single narrative, uh, the journey of the universe, can actively co-create a consciousness that can do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, one could say that what is at stake in the journey of the universe is that it's one possible answer to the question of whether 
science and spirituality coming together to tell the universe story can in fact uh, shift human consciousness. And if it shifts human consciousness, is it possible that that will shift the, the direction of, of a profoundly tragic trajectory that we seem to be on? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Right. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, and that's the hope. Right. And as you've said eloquently in your latest um, essay, you know, Havel has this sense of hope. Yeah. And it's different from optimism, and it's right. very deep and sometimes inchoate, we don't always express it well, but um, I think in, in the people I, I meet here and in many parts of the world, um, that hope is very much alive. Mm -hmm. And it is so alive with our students. Mm -hmm. I feel immensely blessed to have these very bright, you know, the <coughs> Yale undergraduate students are beyond scary smart. <laughs> and the students in the Environment school, divinity school, very, very perceptive. And they have not given up. And that is who we need to be in touch with. I like to speak of an intergenerational handshake. If we can inspire them and share our deep concerns, hmm. we haven't made it easy for them. But their creativity is astonishing. Mm -hmm. You know, even like with this journey of the universe, we've just finished a six-week course where they watch this, these things online. We meet in class, and the students are so excited. Like, one wants to do Instagrams to help get the MOOCs, you know, elevated and things mm -hmm. like that. But they have ideas across the board. Fishing, forestry, endangered species, water issues. And they are working around the world, these, these students. And they have been around the world before they come to the, you know, this is the oldest environment school in the country, and they've had amazing experience before they come. So I really do feel if we can ignite that energy in the next generation, and that's what Teilhard was about, the igniting of energy for this to go forward. So... We are in a, E.O. Wilson likes to speak of it, the Harvard scientist and so on, that we're in this hourglass of going through a period of extinction, a period of loss, a period of trauma, tremoring, um, but that the FAN project is exactly identifying with that process. And I think it has so much to offer because it's putting forward, as many people are, we're in a moment of breakdown but to break through. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the hope. And it's also why seeing the long-term evolutionary processes of universe history, earth history, and human history gives us a trajectory, an arc of time mm -hmm. that we can relate to, breathe into, get resilience from, and so on. So. I'm not minimizing that this is easy, mm -hmm. that there's not tragedy all around us, um, and that we nonetheless have to breathe in not just urgency and the freneticness, but deep time change mm -hmm. well beyond our mm -hmm. lifetime. Um, I agree with that. And um, one of the things I think we also have to be careful about, a friend of mine pointed this out to me, is to distinguish the, quote, decline of the West from the ecological issues. In other words, the West right now 
the older generation of the West uh, feels this profound sense of foreboding about everything. Then, as you point out, there's a whole younger uh, group of people who are much more hopeful, Mm -hmm. much more hopeful, and as you point out, actively working on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the difference. I've always said that the millennials are the generation I've been waiting for because Mm -hmm. they share values with, uh, you know, my uh, age cohort, but they're much more practical Mm -hmm. and they want to go do it. And Mm -hmm. and, and it's not about ideology or theory. It's about, you know, what can we actually do? Um, So I find that hopeful. The other thing I find very hopeful, which you know a good deal about, is that in China, uh, the idea of creating an ecological civilization in China is a really big deal yeah. there from the top down yeah. and you know a tremendous amount of work being mm-hmm. done. And the Chinese, to a significant degree, are quite hopeful. Yeah. And so you, know, you, you have these very different <laughs> mindsets and so easy for us, situated, uh, some of us, as older people in a, quote, decline of the West uh, mindset, mm-hmm. combined with the ecological, you know, potential catastrophe, to see that as a global perspective. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we recognize that younger people are more hopeful, that people in other countries can be more hopeful, and that China is really going for this, yeah. you know. And so it just gives us a, a, more of a sense of balance, I think, about it. I couldn't agree more, and I think we're in our American bubble, yeah. to tell the truth, and, and the news doesn't break that right. for so many reasons. And uh, again, it's why I feel very grateful for the international conferences and the travel I've been able to do over 30, mm-hmm. 40 years, because I first went to Japan 40 years ago, 73, mm-hmm. 74, and it changed my life. And so Asia is a huge part of my life and consciousness. And, <laughs> Many times to China, because Confucianism is my first area of study right. and so on, which we can talk about. But I really appreciate that you're putting eco-civilization um, into this conversation, because as you've said, it's in the constitution of China mm-hmm. that there is a right to a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know it's also in the constitution of Bolivia and Ecuador now, rights of nature. But this is, you're talking well over a billion people. And these are, China and India will change the face of the planet. They already are. Mm-hmm. Our oil, that's going to China, you know, tar sands and so on. So it's on the very highest level. Xi Jinping, with incredibly authoritarian problems now, mm-hmm. but speaks about this all the time in the mm-hmm. party. Yeah. I've been to many conferences that are uh, both NGO, academia, Um, state actors, so to speak, that the whole focus is on this. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a piece of it which can be wrapped up in ideology, like all aspirations for change, but the Chinese know they are up against absolute limits. You cannot breathe in Beijing. There was a huge uh, television journalist document, document, uh, film on, it was about two years ago, Under the Dome, 30 million people watched this. You can still get it here. It was shut down after maybe three or four weeks, Under the Dome. And it was a jur- woman journalist holding her baby up to the window saying, I can't take my baby outside. Riveting. People in the audience are just like this. And she goes through then all the facts. This is connecting to environmental health, oh, yeah. clearly, and so on. 
riveting. The Chinese know. Mm. <laughs> and our sense, we got the Paris Accords for climate change because China came on board mm -hmm. with the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that was a tremendous effort of Kerry and uh, our whole team there in mm. Washington. And then India came on board. We've got to think internationally for these right. problems. Absolutely. So now I'd like to move into the spiritual biography. And I'm going to start with some very original deep time question. Okay. <laughs> Where were you born? <laughs> um, New York City. And uh, what kind of family did you grow up in? So I was born up near Columbia because mm -hmm. um, my grandfather taught history there, which I want to talk about for a moment. But so I had an academic side on my mother's side and mm -hmm. a lawyer side on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And um, but it was it was a Catholic social justice progressive. You take care of the poor. You are if you are educated, you give back. Everything mm -hmm. was for a common good. And Dorothy Day, and these were all part of our lineages and so on. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents were good friends with Dorothy Day and would bring turkeys down at Thanksgiving and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, this sense that, which is also very Confucian, if you cultivate yourself, if you have education, um, or what you, get, you give it to the common mm -hmm. good. So I know many, many people have... Um, more agonizing stories about their family, but I feel enormously grateful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No one's perfect. These, no mm -hmm. per parent is perfect. Mm -hmm. But um, I also feel it's very unusual that my father would have affirmed I had a mind, mm -hmm. you know, that, that I could actually do a PhD or a grad. That, that was still a difficult thing. So I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for the fact that my mother wasn't just like, get married, have children, <laughs> be a nice housewife, or mm -hmm. what? I'm not knocking that either, mm -hmm. but that's the short version of really terrific Well, parents. you and I grew up in New York at about the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, where did you go to grade school? Well, <laughs> wow, we're really, no, we moved out to the suburbs because the mm -hmm. family grew, being mm -hmm. Catholic. Were you the <laughs> oldest? I'm the oldest girl, uh -huh. boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, okay. mm -hmm. um, and so we lived um, in a little town called Pelham, and I went to the okay. public school there. So what were you like in eighth grade? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit rebellious, mm -hmm. um, ready for the 60s, because mm -hmm. high school was mm -hmm. all about mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. for me, and college mm -hmm. too. Um, on the edge of... Um, feeling going in, in and out of New York on the train and mm -hmm. seeing Harlem and seeing the inequities, mm -hmm. just like, why is this and mm -hmm. why should it be so? And so I worked in these different summer programs mm -hmm. for social justice and civil Even rights. Even in eighth grade? Yeah, yeah, wow. I did. Um, yeah. Where did you go to high school? So then I went um, actually to a boarding school that my mother had been to that was even more social justice conscious. Which one? It's called Holy Child at Rosemont College uh -huh. Nuns. And they were terrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously terrific. It was a small school, and I think when you can get women, you know, to feel mm -hmm. empowered, because those years are very hard for women to feel empowered. Yeah. And um, so I took a lot of leadership roles of president of the class and this and that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and 
It was tremendous because it was all about, again, a concern for the larger world. So how deeply did you buy into or did your parents buy into uh, the Catholic uh, trip, for want of a better word, uh, beyond the Dorothy Day social justice dimension? In other words, were you... I have many Catholic friends who have been through this. And as you know, Catholicism is a deep interest of mine. But... um, where were you in kind of how bought into, let's call it conventional Catholicism, you and your family were? And what was your evolution through high school of that orientation? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, because if it's only the social justice and political, we can mm. get burned out. Right. And I think the gift um, that I had. Uh, with those nuns and, and other mm-hmm. training was a, a very profound mm-hmm. spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had access to daily mass and so on, but it was more studying the mystics. Mm-hmm. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. It was uh, a very intentional path through um, a tradition that is enormously rich, yes. as we know, yeah. in that area. So I began reading Teilhard in high school. Okay. You see? So you weren't, you weren't being fed a conventional surface no, Catholicism. No, no, no. You were diving right into the mystics. Yeah. And no. did you have a taste for the mystics? Totally. Okay. Oh, yeah. I All swam right. around there. Okay. <laughs> Dive right. deeply. All right. And, even, and during high school, did you begin to make the connection between Catholic mystics and mystics and other traditions? That's a great question. Um, I don't think, I would just say in short, not until I went to Japan okay. later. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. mm-hmm. So what were you like as a senior in high school? Well, I was president of the school, and um, there's a lot of leadership that, was put on my shoulders, mm-hmm. which was good, but um, I was ready to um, go to Washington and go mm-hmm. to college mm-hmm. and get really involved even more. Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Where did you go? So I went to Trinity, which was the women's part of Georgetown. Mm-hmm. It's where Nancy Pelosi went mm-hmm. and Kathleen mm-hmm. Sebelius, and mm-hmm. they were just a few years ahead of me. And mm-hmm. so it was and I went there because there was an opportunity to go to Oxford for the sophomore year. Uh-huh. And uh, and also because like the choices were between Matt Holyoke and sort of women's colleges mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the Northeast, and I said no, I want to be in Washington mm-hmm. um, for civil rights. Especially. What year was that that you? Uh, I graduated in seventy one, so sixty seven to seventy one. Sixty seven to seventy one. Okay, um, and what? What was the Washington experience like those four years? It was tremendous. Yeah. Because being from New York, I do love cities, and I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of mm-hmm. energy. Mm-hmm. So I love the museums. Mm-hmm. The civilization thing of Kenneth Clark was on at that time. I'd run down to the Smithsonian every week to watch that. Mm-hmm. I worked in Muskie's office. Um, I worked on the Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. All the great civil rights leaders were speaking. Mm-hmm. When King was shot, I was right downtown on 14th mm-hmm. Street working on these campaigns. The city exploded. National Guard came in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was very intense. Mm-hmm. But it was also the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, mm-hmm. which were huge. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I was at the Pentagon with tear gas and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, my parents weren't thrilled about this, I mm-hmm. have to say. But they didn't stop me. Mm-hmm. And it was so alive mm-hmm. with the arguments of the time. You know, is this communism and domino theory mm-hmm. and, and so on? And, and But your cousin, your brother, your friend is going Mm-hmm. Because of the draft. Mm-hmm. And so extremely, these two issues were just so alive. What's happening in our own country? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why are so many African Americans being mm-hmm. drafted? And, so on, and then what's happening around the world? What is our militarism? Which goes on and on and on. But and what was happening to you intellectually and spiritually during that four-year experience? <clears throat> well... I was fortunate to have this year in Oxford mm-hmm. um, to study history and literature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can talk about privilege and guilt and so on, but mm-hmm. this was a year that it didn't cost a lot for those times, mm-hmm. um, like $2,000. Mm-hmm. And we were able to have boat back and forth, and we had a lot of travel in Europe, six mm-hmm. weeks of art and so mm-hmm. on from Greece to Paris and mm-hmm. travel in, in the, the British Isles So, oh, and the year at Oxford. So that was a huge deepening in Western history mm-hmm. and civilization mm-hmm. and culture and mm-hmm. tutorials at Oxford, mm-hmm. you know, very demanding. But mm-hmm. there was, Bill Clinton was there. Was, there was politics still swirling, you know, mm-hmm. over there. Um, but Paul Gorman must have been there if Bill Clinton was there. <laughs> At the same time. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, No, it was just, um, it was a very rich mm-hmm. deepening of, a his, of historical roots mm-hmm. and understanding, and also literature, which I completely love, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and learning to write in these two I mentioned Paul Gorman. He d- went on to direct the National Religious Partnership yes. on the Environment, yes. which was a seminal piece of work in bringing exactly. the religions on board on environmental totally. issues. Totally, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, I'm yeah. very indebted to Paul. And he yeah. did that at uh, Grace Cathedral in New York. Uh, Cathedral of St. John I'm the sorry, Divine. Cathedral of St. Yeah. John the Divine in New York, yeah. where Jim Morton was the dean, and Jim Morton was, again, a transformative figure. Paul right. Moore was the bishop. Right. And that was a period where the Cathedral of St. John the Divine had an astonishing cultural, political right. role in the history of uh, spirituality and ecology. Exactly, and yeah. I was at Columbia at the time, yeah. so I would go over all the time to Paul Winter's The Winter Solstice. Yeah, right. Next year he's celebrating 40 years of the Earth Mass. Right. Thomas Berry was a canon there. Right. And deeply influenced Jim and Mary Catherine Bateson and so many others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it... It was an amazing period, mm-hmm. 25 years at the cathedral there. So when you graduated from college, did you go directly to Columbia? No, I, um, I did a master's in literature first, and then I went, I, I was... Where I did worked, you do that? That was it. It was one of these efforts that came out of HEW to support community college teaching. I see. And I was very interested in the democratic processes of education. Okay. And so I began my teaching in community colleges, and this was at SUNY Fredonia. Oh, wonderful. A fellowship for that. So, and then I worked on the McGovern campaign, um, and when Nixon was elected the second time, Mm -hmm. I said, I am leaving the country, Mm -hmm. because 
we could see Watergate, we mm. could see it all happening mm -hmm. through the mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. And um, through Trinity in Washington, they had a <coughs> college in Japan, and I went to teach at that college. Uh -huh. And, and that was the great opening. That was the great opening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, our colleges, and even now, don't have a lot on Asia and right. Asian studies. Right. So I felt completely <laughs> a mm -hmm. blank slate, and I just absorbed and absorbed. And it partly because I wasn't just disillusioned politically, but I was disillusioned with the massive attraction of materialism mm -hmm. and superficial Mm -hmm. qualities of our society, which mm -hmm. we all recognize. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not knocking the U.S. and, you know, we yeah. have so much to offer, but yeah. it filled my soul right. in so many mm -hmm. ways. This mm -hmm. culture, the traditions, uh, the people. So that was a turning point. It was right? totally a turning point. Yeah, yeah 73. What was the essence of the turning point in Japan? If you could point to one seminal experience or transformative awakening or whatever you would call it, what, what was it that was the real turning point there? Yeah, and there'd be more than one. Well, yeah. give us several. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, one was I deeply immersed myself in Zen. And mm -hmm. so I did a lot of meditation and there's this one beautiful experience in Kyoto. I would go to Kyoto every weekend. Um, because the university was very fairly close on the bullet train. And I just remember being there in the middle of winter. There weren't a lot of tourists in Japan mm. then, and mm. certainly not in the winter. And I'm sitting in this beautiful Zen garden and the raked rocks and mm. the moss and the water and complete quiet, nothing mm. around. Mm. And all of a sudden it begins to snow. Mm. And I just felt I was in another yeah. world, mm. you know? And what those gardens bring out, of mm. course, are... We can all say it and, and not yeah. say it because mm -hmm. I what, don't even want to give it words. But So Zen was hugely important. Um, the other, I did a number of retreats mm -hmm. um, through, the, through my own tradition, through Catholicism and so mm -hmm. on, um, just for the silence, the space, to read, mm -hmm. to think, to pray. And then um, the great transition, I guess you might say, is... I, I wanted, I had been given some of Thomas Berry's papers before mm -hmm. I left mm -hmm. by Fanny DeBerry, Ted DeBerry, the great Asian scholar at Columbia, his wife. Mm -hmm. And these were family friends, mm -hmm. which I'll explain. And Fanny DeBerry gave me Thomas Berry's mimeograph papers, mm -hmm. the Riverdale papers, which mm -hmm. I'm sure some of you have read. And I read them before I left. I was fascinated, but I didn't quite get them. I pulled them out of my suitcase and read them while I was there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this insight mm -hmm. is incredible. Mm -hmm. Because he was saying, he was balanced. You know, Western history has this trajectory of time and history and development and so on. And Asia has, at least East Asia, you know, interiority and, and a meditational sensibility. And, but it was much more elegant than mm -hmm. that. And I was like... I have to write him to get his book on Buddhism, which had been recently mm -hmm. published. Mm -hmm. And the miracle of my life, Michael, is that he wrote back. Uh -huh. Really, just that he wrote back, mm -hmm. you know, because that was the really big transition. What year were you in Japan? 73, 74. Mm -hmm. Wow. So yeah. 
And as I said, there weren't many foreigners, and you can imagine I'm six feet tall and different color hair and eyes. <laughs> You'd come around the corner, and people were like, Gulliver's Travels. You know? <laughs> the first Japanese word I learned is Takai. She's actually so tall. Um, I'll just tell one quick story coming up to Tokyo in the summer with uh, another woman who was teaching there with me, and we went to the Western Art Museum, and we bought these Rodin uh, you know, posters to put on our wall, and just having this Western art after being so immersed in, in Asia. And we're sitting there in the subway, and all the whole subway starts looking at these two <laughs> foreigners, you know, gaijin. And uh, so we just put our posters and our rolls like this, and we just <laughs> It was a very humorous moment. Yeah. But it wasn't easy being, you know, no. a foreigner no. in that culture. No, no, but wonderful. So you came back with this transformative insight, um, and did that change what you did next, or did you know what you were going to do next? Well, I also traveled extensively through Asia oh. to come home. Mm-hmm. You know that in the back in the day, right? Exactly. <laughs> so someone had gone this way, right? Okay, from Europe all the way to Japan. Right. I met her at this Zen retreat. Yeah. And she gave me all the names of people right. she had stayed right. with. And right. So I went right. back that way mm-hmm. through Southeast Asia and India and, mm-hmm. and um, Egypt and so on. So that really, you know, exploded my mind. This was backpacking kind of yes. travel by bus, yeah. live inexpensively. Yes, yes, India, and very so cheap flights right. you could right. get in those right. days mm-hmm. and so on. And I traveled with this Scottish woman who was just all filled with energy and mm-hmm. sense of adventure. Right. And, right. and he, I mean, it just exploded yeah. the notion yeah. that <laughs> religion, spirituality is obviously hugely important around mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. and. How can I understand this mm-hmm. more? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of the trajectory going yeah, back. Yeah. But I started with NYU um, in a program on theater because mm. I love theater. Mm. My master's I had written on Harold Pinter and the theater of the absurd uh-huh. and so on. I was very into existentialism and all that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, Asian <laughs> theater, the no and the kabuki, and it's mm-hmm. just so marvelous and mm-hmm. so rich. and mm-hmm. um, But NYU didn't have a feeling for the spiritual depths of mm-hmm. these traditions. Mm-hmm. So after sitting on the floor in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. first semester, I said, I've been doing that for two years in yeah, Japan. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I went to meet Thomas Berry, of course, during this period. And I remember the day, early February, beautiful winter, mm-hmm. brilliant sky, overlooking the Hudson River, the Palisades, Mm-hmm. 150 million year old geological formations. I knew the moment I met him, this is my teacher. You know, as, as many people felt about him and other, other people. Mm-hmm. But so he started teaching me Sanskrit, and I began uh, to read the Bhagavad Gita and enter into these Asian courses. And I did my master's with him at Fordham and, and met John on the way. <laughs> Who was also studying with him. He was. Mm -hmm. And he had been there since about 67. Mm -hmm. So he had been with him already quite some time. And a wonderful community of students developed. So what was your first impression of Thomas Berry when you met him? Just, um, he was a person who had charisma without showing it, Mm -hmm. you know. 
uh, because he was so warm and uh, hospitable in a southern kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the sense of wisdom, mm-hmm. learnedness, the mm-hmm. library there at Riverdale, 10,000 mm-hmm. books. You could just feel it oozing out. Mm-hmm. But it was a wisdom that was transformed into or made available to you and me, mm-hmm. and especially something for our times. Mm-hmm. You know, not just for our enlightenment or well-being, which is important, mm-hmm. but for these very critical mm-hmm. times. And he was just... So for those who don't know Thomas Berry, let's just bring him in now. Who was Thomas Berry? So Thomas Berry... Um, was born in 1914, died in 2009, 94 years. Um, he was a person from a large Catholic Southern family in Greensboro. Very small percentage of Catholics living down there, less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think he had a pretty healthy mm-hmm. uh, experience growing up. Um, but his father really made him independent in a way, and he was very independent as a child. He entered a religious order because he knew he needed a place for contemplation and thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and he entered a passionist order, which is not like a Jesuit a teaching order, it's a preaching order. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had its challenges mm-hmm. over many years because he was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And He eventually was able to get a PhD at Catholic University, and he went to China in 1948, mm. which transformed his life, mm. with Ted DeBerry, this professor at Columbia who's really the grandfather of Asian studies, who just died this past summer at mm. 97, still mm. teaching at Columbia. These two were friends for 60-plus years. They helped establish Asian studies at Fordham and at Columbia. Um, But Thomas Berry went beyond just the study of the history of religions, which was the program he created at Fordham that was astonishing. Because he said it's not only human history, but earth history mm-hmm. and universe history. And so in 78, a little three years after I met him, he did this new story essay that was a watershed right. breakthrough moment. Was he influenced by Teilhard de Chardin? Very much so. Mm-hmm. And in 1964, the first Teilhard conference, Teilhard died in 1955, 1881 to 1955. Mm-hmm. His works weren't translated really until 1960 into English. 64 was the first Teilhard conference in the U.S. Thomas gave a keynote talk called The Threshold of the Modern World that blew people away, standing mm-hmm. ovation. Mm-hmm. Teilhard was a huge influence He was appreciative, but also critical, which was also very helpful. In which sense was he critical? Well, he felt, so Teilhard had this evolutionary perspective, energy and matter over time and so on. But he also felt Teilhard was overly optimistic about technology and science as a technofix kind mm-hmm. of thing. And Teilhard, even though he lived for many years in China during the war um, and was a paleontologist there, didn't appreciate Asian religions and mm-hmm. culture and so on. And that's partly a function of the time. Mm-hmm. There's the church was there's no truth in other mm-hmm. religions until mm-hmm. Vatican II. So those were some of his limitations. 
But nonetheless, the Teilhardian influence, and by the way, his beautiful essay on the cosmic sensibility of Teilhard that was written in World War I when he's a stretcher bearer, mm. and he is seeing out of tremendous destruction and suffering, nonetheless, something's emerging, something's calling us forward. And that's what attracted me to Teilhard, that mm. he had a real really powerful understanding of suffering and tragedy. So you were reading Chardin before you met Thomas Berry? Yes, I started in high school and, of course, didn't yeah. really understand him fully. He's very complicated. But I did really dive deeply into him in Japan. Mm. And um, I started with things like the letters. Mm. You know, letters are so fantastic, mm. right? And he wrote letters to his cousins and family members who were suffering. The Making of a Mind is a really beautiful book. Um, and then there's just a very short book called How I Believe. And he said, if I lost my faith in God, I would still believe in the world. Mm -hmm. He's like, that's pretty neat. You know, he had a tremendous commitment to matter uh, and this unfolding process. So yes, I had read Teilhard before meeting Thomas. I know that you and your husband, John Grimm, have been foundational to the American Théâtre de Chardin Society. I read that John marked 30 years as president um, and received the Thomas Berry Award from the uh, association. Right. Um, and so your engagement with Chardin and Barry, as we're saying, and the differentiation that we're developing, uh, both of Barry's appreciation for Chardin, for his deep time perspective, mm -hmm. but that uh, Chardin did not have an appreciation of the spiritual dimension of the Asian tradition so right. much. Um, so um, I'm just reminded that um, for me, part of the uh, Barry story is that uh, our friends Fritz and Vivian Hull up at the Whidbey Institute um, were also seminally involved with Barry and involved in, I think, the first conference up there. I don't know if you were there. Uh, I wasn't, but I know what you're Barry presented, yeah. and, and now there's a Thomas Barry Hall at the Whidbey yes. Institute, yes. which is where all their gatherings take place. Right. So for me, since I spend about three months of the year up on Whidbey Island, I'm very connected to that dimension and, yep. and have done a spiritual biography with Fritz Hall also, and Wonderful. So, who co-founded the Whidbey Institute and, and was also part of this movement right. in ecology and spirituality that Actually, we're talking about. No, I love that you mentioned that for two reasons, because um, Brian Swim found one of Thomas Berry's essays at Whitby Institute. Oh, really? So that's a wonderful connection. And then mm. we worked for, over that 10-year period mm. while we were working on Journey of the <clears throat> Universe, every summer we would have a workshop up there with scientists, mm -hmm. refining the science and the language and so on. Uh -huh. So they've been a great yeah. seminal presence. A seminal presence mm -hmm. in this. So um, you finished your master's. Um, what did you do next? Uh, well, it was the master's and then going to Japan. Oh, well, the master's with Thomas. That's right. There were yeah. two different. <laughs> um, I went to Columbia. Mm -hmm. So Ted DeBerry, who was Thomas's good friend, mm -hmm. uh, had created 
I still think the best Asian studies program in the country, mm -hmm. where you would have civilization and history, you would have reading of texts in mm -hmm. translation. Um, and I spent eight years there. Um, and With a focus on Confucian? Well, you study. had to, the first year, you had yeah. to take major exams on all the world's religions, mm -hmm. um, day-long exams mm -hmm. and so on. So it was a pretty ferocious mm -hmm. Uh, system, and in fact, it was so hard, I came in with like 12 other students, and I was the only one to finish after eight years. Oh my goodness, Yeah, that it, is ferocious. Ferocious. Yeah. My yeah. brothers called it sophisticated child abuse. <laughs> 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 um, but it was ferocious. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, I could not have survived it without Thomas Berry, mm -hmm. without John, mm -hmm. friends, family mm -hmm. in the area. Mm -hmm. It was very, very hard. Wow. But we could not have done the religion and ecology project mm -hmm. at Harvard without that depth, depth understanding engagement. of the traditions. Mm -hmm. And then what I had to do for my dissertation was take a Japanese text, translate it, annotate it, introduce it, comment on it, mm -hmm. and so on. And so that took many years mm -hmm. with a great Confucian Japanese thinker. I did one of those that was published a little bit later, and then another translation that took me 25 years to finish. Wow. So these were partly because, you see, we don't have enough translations, mm -hmm. especially on the East Asian traditions of Taoism and, and Confucianism and Buddhism even. Mm -hmm. We have more on India mm -hmm. than we do on East Asia. Mm -hmm. So DeBerry created this huge translation of Asian mm -hmm. classic series, mm -hmm. which has been a great help for these studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, that's a story in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what was happening to your own sense of religious identity as a born Catholic who had wasn't doing surface Catholicism, had dived into the mystical tradition in uh, high school, uh, did your engagement with Catholic mysticism continue to deepen throughout this whole period, or, or did it begin to move into other traditions with your exposure to Japan and uh, the trip around the world and so forth? At what point did you, if ever, you begin to ask yourself whether your Catholic identity was a sufficient holder for your expanding sense of spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Well, Thomas Berry liked to speak about like a rose window where mm -hmm. the center is a tradition that you might come out of it, mm -hmm. and then the flowers are other traditions mm -hmm. that are part of that. So, as I say, I've, I've been fortunate to come out of a healthy Catholicism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which might be rare, unfortunately, I don't know, but I... I think I didn't, I mean, Hildegard of Bingham, you know, things that came out later, of course, you're reading that, and mm -hmm. what Matt Fox did with Creation Spirituality is great, mm -hmm. what Richard Rohr is doing with the mystics right now is great, mm -hmm. um, but Taird became my base note, mm -hmm. pretty much, and, um, and that was true for Brian, too, um, and so this little association, I've been vice president, Brian's been vice president, too, so we're carrying mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. lineage for and it's just 50 years old in 
And as I say, for 30 years, we've been running it. But for 30 years, we've also been trying to take that Teordian vision into <coughs> the Barry perspective that we need to tell this as a story and mm-hmm. so on. So, but I think the sacramental quality of Catholicism, mm-hmm. you see, is what does resonate. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, a Buddhist teacher at Columbia, after I had written a paper on Shingon Buddhism, which is mm-hmm. the esoteric form of Buddhism in Japan, said to DeBerry, this is a good paper, and in part probably because of her Catholic understanding of ritual and mm-hmm. the sacramental world, that's esoteric Buddhism. So I feel Catholicism gave me that ability mm-hmm. to appreciate this in other traditions as well mm-hmm. and, and go forward with it. Mm-hmm. Just as a sidelight of a certain kind, we haven't talked about Thomas Merton. Where does he stand in your pantheon of experiences? Way up there. He's mm-hmm. of New York and Columbia. Yeah. And I read his seven-story mountain in high school. Mm-hmm. I, I was deeply mm-hmm. moved by him and mm-hmm. continue to love his mm-hmm. reflections. And he mm-hmm. has a huge following. Um, and, of course, he was also against the war and mm-hmm. for civil rights, mm-hmm. the Vietnam War and civil rights and so on. And... Um, and there's a beautiful little book on his environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. So if he had lived longer, there was no doubt that that would have been part of it. And he was already into interreligious dialogue, the, especially the Buddhists, when he died in Thailand. Um, he was at a conference along those I've lines. been reading his letters from that last journey. An extraordinary, you know, yes. before his death. Yes. Um, an extraordinary mm-hmm. piece. So all of these traditions have been such a gift in my life. Um, And so the container, and it's not just the traditions, and it's it's the earth. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening to the earth. It's it's the universe and so on. Mm -hmm. So these have been wellsprings. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, So when somebody asks you to describe your spiritual orientation now, what do you say? (laughs) I've never thought about it exactly in that way. (laughs) Isn't that curious? You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. Well, I mean, one would think as as one of the world's leading historians of religions who's done 10 volumes on the world's religions and has done, you know, has been seminal to Thomas Berry's work and to holding Teilhard de Chardin's work, and, and you never asked what you consider yourself? No, but, you know, here's the thing. I'm first, glad to be the first. You are, Michael. <laughs> you absolutely are. May I shake your hand and thank you for the question? Because, no, honestly, here's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's not that I'm not self-reflective on it, yeah. but I'm not publicly. No, I understand. Ever. No, of course. Serious? No, but this is the first time I've ever even talked about right. most of this. Thank you. And I trust you. I, I value this yeah. community. Yeah. I value Commonweal. Mm-hmm. And to speak with the I word, mm-hmm. very difficult. And it's very difficult for a woman, in case you didn't notice, <laughs> mm-hmm. to speak with the I yeah. word. You see, to own your space. Mm-hmm. And that is something I do want to do, and I welcome mm-hmm. this threshold moment. Mm-hmm. Thank you. See? you. I'm honored. No, yeah. it's, 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 I'm very grateful. And I'm grateful mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. all of you here just to, I'd love to hear your stories too. You know, we and, tell stories. And with so great we can skill, grow. you didn't answer the question. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. Right. 
I love that. I love that. No, I mean, you know, when people ask me, um, and I say this lightly, but I say I'm a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi with Taoist influences. That's my, I love my line. I love it. Um, but what I mean by that is that in the course of my searching, my father was Jewish, my mother was Christian, and she considered herself, by the way, a secret Catholic, and Jim Morton was her confessor. I love at it. The cath- mm-hmm. Because when she married my father, she bought into a completely secular, you know, progressive uh, sort of social democrat worldview, which yep. is the one I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so, but she was a secret Catholic. And so she needed to educate her children in a Catholic-informed spirituality without any of us knowing that she was doing it. Interesting. And so um, she did that by making a big deal out of Christmas Mm -hmm. and by getting us to memorize against our wishes some psalms. Um, But the result for me, I'll just say, is that um, where I am at age 74 is that that these traditions of Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, yoga, and the Sufi tradition, each of them have deeply opened to me over, you know, 40 years of intense exploration. And the Taoist one has not opened to me as much, and there are many others that haven't. But when I say that as a, you know, this is uh, every day, you know, like right now, I've gone back to reading Torah on a daily basis, which I did for two years of depth work in Judaism, but haven't for a long time, but felt called back to reading Torah, which, you know, um, but at the same time, I'm deeply immersed in Matthew Fox's Cosmic Christ. And for me, uh, of all these traditions, um, the what I call the living Christ is, um, is the lens In other words, I believe, as you know from our conversations, I tend to believe, although I've been corrected by you, in the perennial philosophy that there is one truth and many paths to the truth. That's Leibniz and Huxley wrote the book called The Perennial Philosophy. And in an online conversation, I mistakenly identified um, Thomas Berry with the perennial philosophy, and the perennial philosophy is the heart of all the great spiritual traditions. And you kindly said, no, Barry would not identify with the perennial philosophy. And by the way, Confucianism doesn't fit with the perennial philosophy, which, as I said to you, was a big surprise to me because I'd been holding this meme that there was one truth and many paths to it and that the perennial philosophy somehow was present in all the religions. So this is all by way of saying that uh, my question to you about how you would identify is a living question for me, mm-hmm. but in saying that um, the living Christ for me is the particular fractal that comes out of a light that goes into all the traditions, which, by the way, is a very Sufi view, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that's what the Sufis... Uh, I think that's the advance of the Sufi tradition in the Abrahamic traditions, that they really saw that there were prophets in every tradition. And obviously they privileged Muhammad, but they really recognized that all the traditions got their own prophets. So, um, so that was the kind of inner framework of my question to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I speak of the living Christ, I realize more and more deeply that 
And Brother David Standerast, in the spiritual biography I did with him, spoke of this, and he speaks of it. He says that, and Richard Rohr says the same, they say that many people think of Christ as Jesus' second name, Jesus Christ, you know. But in fact, there's a tension between the historical man, Jesus, and, the, and whatever you want to call the cosmic Christ, you know. And that the cosmic Christ concept is one that in the biblical tradition goes back to the beginning of time, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so for me, when I say the living Christ, I'm not thinking of the historical Jesus so much. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the cosmic Christ. And for me, I can't separate the cosmic Christ from Krishna or Muhammad or Buddha or any of the other great fractals of this single truth. So when you said to me that Confucianism doesn't fit uh, in this perennial philosophy story that I'd been telling myself, uh, and when the great religious sociologist we were just talking Robert Bella. Robert Bella, I did a conversation with him, also made fun of me for the you know, idea that there was a single perennial philosophy. And when he did it, I kind of danced around it. But when you did it, I thought, I've got to give up this meme, you know. And that was a big deal for me, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm, to be honest, I'm still wrestling yeah. with it. Because I think um, what I would say is maybe the perennial philosophy is not at the heart of all the traditions, but they are all different at the mystical levels they are all different expressions of the experience of the numinous and of expressions, I would say this, I'd be curious, of, you know, a, a share. I like to think that there's a shared experience. I like to believe that. I know that as academics who differentiate, you may not believe there's a shared experience, and that's okay with me. But anyway, I'll stop there. That's just like a little extended riff on my, my question to you. Well, you know, I appreciate your journey, yeah. and I appreciate the depth of it, yeah. the sincerity of it, the rigor of it, mm-hmm. and many, many people, I think, are on their journey, yeah, right, right? In, in various ways. And um, so I want to affirm that and the, mm-hmm. and the plurality of that and so on. Uh, I also... I mean, I will say the cosmic Christ of the universe is, is a Teilhardian idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very much, and this is where I actually want to move to the sacred dimensions of the universe. Mm-hmm. You see, that's where I rest my spiritual journey, right. you see? And the traditions have informed that, but I don't stop with the traditions. Mm-hmm. That would be one way of saying it. Um, so that the, all the traditions have had this rich long, riveting journey themselves Mm -hmm. to express something and to change over time. And what we're trying to do in the religions and ecology is evoke them, midwife them, into relationship with the mystery uh, and complexity of our earth and universe systems. Mm -hmm. And that is a spiritual ecology. That's your resting place. Very yeah. much so, yeah. And I, I, I accept that as a beautiful resting place. I mean, I think one, you know, in the, uh, in the Gita, there are three great yogas wrestling for supremacy. Uh, the yoga of love, bhakti yoga, the love, love of, uh, yoga of wisdom, yana yoga, and the yoga of service, karma yoga. 
The Gita tells us that the greatest of those three is the yoga of love. And what it says specifically is that it's easy to get lost in the yoga of wisdom. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's an arduous path. Right. And I think that one of the things that the traditional religions give us in various forms is a personalization in the Buddha or the Christ or something that someone, some human being to relate to. And when I think, of, I would love to experience um, the journey of the universe as my central spiritual home mm -hmm. because it's so clearly true and there are so many good things about it. But I miss that personalization that, mm -hmm. that I think most of the religions give us. Okay, but there's two things here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not all the religions give us that. Yeah, because right. this is why I want to just talk about Confucianism yeah, right. a little bit. Yeah. But then also return to, or maybe punctuate it here, the Teordian vision mm -hmm. of the interiority of matter, mm -hmm. of matter and energy, spirit and energy evolving over time, mm -hmm. is a profoundly spiritual journey mm -hmm. with, for him, a cosmic Christ infusing the whole universe. Mm -hmm. You can take this from a Logos principle mm -hmm. in the John's Gospel, that there is an inner ordering principle to all reality. Mm -hmm. That's from the beginning of time. Oh, I like that. Okay, that helps me. The beginning yeah. of time that has a historical presence and manifestation, as you've just said, in Jesus, mm -hmm. but throughout this unfolding universe, I would say mm -hmm. there's something sacred evolving. Oh, I, I agree there's something sacred. I just, how do the Confucian, uh, how does the Confucian tradition uh, personalize itself? In the human In the order. Human. Right. So, and this is why mm -hmm. um, I like to, we generally speak about the world's religions through the lens of the Western religions. Right. And I like to say there's <laughs> uh, West Asia, Western mm -hmm. religions, there's East Asia, Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism, and there's South Asia, Hinduism mm -hmm. and Vedanta and the Gita and so on. But these are very distinct mm -hmm. patterns. And so East Asia um, has a much deeper feeling for the immanental mm -hmm. quality of things, for the numinous right here and now, you see. And that, I think, is hugely attractive to me and to many others. Mm -hmm. And why is it that this is a tradition that's influenced more people on the planet than any other tradition mm -hmm. over time and with numbers. So if you take its cosmology, mm -hmm. you can say it has a sense of cosmos, earth, and human, mm -hmm. right? So something guiding this process, it's, it's called Tien or heaven, but it doesn't mean heaven in our sense, mm -hmm. but some cosmological principles. Uh, earth, dynamic, fecund, mm -hmm. unfolding. We need to harmonize with it. We need to identify with it. That's the I Ching. That's all of Confucian rituals. Mm -hmm. Space and time and directions and seasons and so on. It's hugely in inflected into mm -hmm. China and Japan and Korea. And then the, what is the human role then in this cosmological universe? It's an anthropocosmic worldview. Mm -hmm so that the human completes this dynamic and unfolding mm. process, that human action 
we are co-creators, co-evolvers with this process, you see, so that all human action, so the concentric circles then within that cosmology, the human is not an individual, it's always in relationship. Mm. Absolutely relationality is at the mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. The family contains that and nurtures it. The society helps it to grow. The next circle is education, hugely important. Politics, mm-hmm. nature, and the cosmos. Completely inclusive. You drop a pebble into this pond and it's rippling and affecting, mutually affecting over and over again. The key, one of the key circles, though, is education, meaning not just for a job or a technical skill, but for cultivation of the human to participate in these extraordinary processes right around us at Bolinas and the ocean and the redwoods and the species and the water and the fog and the food systems growing here and so on and so forth. That is the participation or what Thomas Berry would call the great work. And linking this up is what we need to do right now. And it's why Confucianism with its Every tradition has its problematic side, its women's sides, etc. But every tradition has these fountains of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that is the engagement of relational resonance. We know indigenous peoples have it. But my thesis is on chi. Mm-hmm. Okay? <laughs> chi is matter energy. In the universe, in you and me, you can cultivate it through qigong, tai chi, you cultivate it in healthy food, clear water, systems that nurture the human. So qi Mm -hmm. is that relational resonance that uh, can be cultivated, nourished, and you can create flourishing societies around it. And that is the Confucian vision. And it is a sense ultimately of the common good over individual freedoms. And I want to relate this to journey, mm-hmm. okay? Because you, you're quite right in penetrating, Michael, in your mm-hmm. sense that we need personhoods, mm-hmm. we need a sense of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we also clearly need community. By the way, I just want to say that was very beautiful and it helped me, I mean, that felt like a big, uh, piece of help to me uh, because I hadn't grokked Confucianism before yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. But were you extending that sense of all the concentric circles to the Buddhist tradition as well, or is the Buddhist tradition different from different. that? Different. Yeah. How would the, you describe the, the Buddhist? Well, the Buddhist vision? tradition, see, the cosmology is different. Yeah. Yeah. This is why cosmology is so important. Yeah. How you ha- create your worldview. Yeah determines your actions and your energy for transformation. So again, you know, we've got so many forms of Buddhism and Zen and esoteric Buddhism and so on, but in general, Mm -hmm. one could say that the great insight of Buddhism Mm -hmm. is the together rising up of things, Mm -hmm. the pratitya sampada, the the collectivity Mm -hmm. of interdependence the interbeing, Thich Nhat Hanh refers to, is a great cosmological insight. And that's like what you talk about Prigogine in The Journey of the Universe, yes. right? Yes. Ilya Prigogine, who's 
you'll say it better than I do, whose insight was self-organizing systems can yes. come up from below, yes. which is a central dimension of the exactly. journey of the universe. So exactly. that you find that in that Buddhist tradition. Exactly. Yeah. And see, this is inflected with <clears throat> right. the interdependence. We've just, Prigogine, mm -hmm. a sense, we end the film and the book by saying, what if, I didn't say this about Confucianism, but the notion, the human is the mind and heart mm -hmm. of heaven and earth. That's mm -hmm. a Confucian notion. That's one character. So it's the thinking, feeling, completion of heaven and earth. And heaven is literally considered heaven as father, earth as mother. What a, uh, a small child has this place in their midst. That's one of the most famous lines of Confucianism. Um, and it's, it's in this book. So the Buddhism then has this profound insight into change mm -hmm. and into the dynamics of interdependence. Mm -hmm. So does Confucianism. But Confucianism says we have to harmonize with change. We have to situate ourselves within the seasons, within the directions, within mm -hmm. the animal powers, mm -hmm. the bird powers, and so on. All of this is, is deeply shaped around our cultivation. Mm -hmm. Buddhism, by and large, of course, there's a mandala approach. Mm -hmm. There's a no thinking clearing the mind approach, there's vipassana, you know, watching things come up and down. But in general, it's to steady the personhood in this changing, dynamic, suffering world. Mm -hmm. um, so Buddhism, by and large, does not have a social, political, or educational philosophy in the same way Confucianism mm. does. Interesting. You see? And... Uh, that led to sometimes tension and sometimes complementarity. Mm -hmm. You know, the richness of, of various forms of Buddhist meditation are almost non-paral, mm -hmm. you know, non-paral. So, but the Confucians and even my teacher at Columbia would sometimes criticize the Buddhists like, well, and then what? Mm -hmm. Enlightenment and then chopping wood or whatever. But it, it, it's like, how does this transform society? So... One of the things that has made, you know, Arnold Toynbee's great comment that perhaps the most important event of the 20th century would be the coming of the Dharma to the West. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that has made Buddhism such an influential meme in the West is that it, it is non-theistic. It doesn't require a belief in a God. It doesn't require anything except a willingness to sit with your experience. Mm -hmm. Is that also true of the Confucian tradition? In other words, as a non-theistic tradition, Confucianism hasn't traveled the way Buddhism has, right? But again, that's partly because the translations haven't been available. I see. You see. And Buddhism in its pure land form right. in China and Korea and Japan is the largest form of Buddhism. Right. And that does have a theistic okay, dimension. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But, but generally... Yeah. It, the one that came to the West has been non-theistic. Right. 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 Um, in general. But, and this is the point about the various paths, right. the same experience. And, and I would suggest they're, they're different, mm -hmm. but, um, and yet complementary. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. I love about them. They're complementary. Mm -hmm. uh, so Confucianism is not interested in personal enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It's interested in transformative change mm -hmm. for a common good. That is a very different mm -hmm. spiritual religious goal, right? And isn't it quite behaviorally based? In other words, it's, it's more about acts than about beliefs or not? Yes, you could say it's what 
orthopraxy, not yeah. orthodoxy. Right. Mm -hmm. You see? So it's, it's what you do. It's what you do. It's very pragmatic. And sometimes it's called spiritual humanism um, and, and so on. But it is this notion of relationship. So mm -hmm. how you greet people. The Japanese is very inflected with a language, women's language, uh, mm -hmm. people above you, below. Mm -hmm. So there's a hierarchy there. But the, each thing has its negative and yeah, positive, right, right, right? right? So you have a role that matters mm -hmm. and you're valued mm -hmm. in these societies. Um, so collective societies, which are very different from hyper-individual right. societies, especially like ours, yeah. um, each are needed. But I will just tell you why Journey of the Universe has a practical value. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a student who came from Nepal to Yale to the School of Forestry this semester, and she, we took her out to dinner with some other students. And she said, you know, the first semester, I came from a very collectivist society, mm -hmm. always with family and friends and so on. And I came here, and I actually had a nervous breakdown mm. with the individualism. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't get it. That's pretty intense, because yeah. we think that's such a hyper value. Mm -hmm. It's a value, but it has to be contextualized. You know? And she said, through this Journey of the Universe class, she regained a sense of her place mm. and her purpose. And I want to just take this also to Carl Anthony yes. and the work that Drew Dellinger, who's here, has mm -hmm. done as well. Yeah. To, yeah. So Carl, yeah. wonderful African-American, environmental justice at the heart, working with Drew on, on Martin Luther King mm -hmm. and the environmental justice and so on. Um, so Carl, as you know, has this experience of reading Alexander Pope, A Great Chain of Being, mm -hmm. White People at the Top, feeling mm -hmm. excluded. He reads New Story, mm -hmm. he gets into Universe Story, and mm -hmm. he realizes, I can find where I belong here. Mm -hmm. Now, Carl's new book, yes. Earth, City, and the Hidden Narrative of Race, yeah. is a fantastic breakthrough to do what we couldn't do in Journey or Universe Story, because we're just trying to get a 14 billion year universe out there in an outline form. Mm -hmm. But now we have to tell the story of the humans, all these different cultures and religions, mm -hmm. but people in our society who haven't been included, African Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and on and on, Latinos. So how does this give us a grounding for where we need to go forward? That for those who value, it's, it's spiritually grounded, mm -hmm. uh, it's cosmically connected, mm -hmm. it's ecologically relational, and it's humanly liberating because it gives us a sense of our place, mm -hmm. our role, our purpose. Because if we run out of not just fossil fuel energy, mm -hmm. if we run out of human energy, mm -hmm. that's part of the collapse. Mm -hmm. So... In a number of cases, this has been quite extraordinary. I'll just mm -hmm. end that part here. A former governor of New Jersey is showing this in prisons. In the woman prisoned, um, I said, well, Jim, how did it go? He said, complete silence after showing the Journey of the Universe film. And this one woman says, they're actually crying. And she says, for the first time, I know where I belong. Mm, how beautiful. It's incredible. It's mm -hmm. really incredible. So this sense 
that were contained in something much larger than ourselves um, that has a richness of its own self-organizing dynamics, mm -hmm. but that our creativity can be aligned with this creativity. It's the most liberating things that humans can possibly mm -hmm. begin to understand. I think it's very profound. Uh, um, I'm realizing, I really think it's in a certain sense a shortcoming of mine, but one that I share with, I'm sure, millions of other people that, you know, it's funny, uh, in, in our love relationships, we all have whatever you want to call love maps, which are actually extremely exquisitely tuned to mm -hmm. the very particular kind of person or whatever experience that we fall in love with. And so clearly, in religious or spiritual terms, we all have our religious spiritual love maps, whatever mm -hmm. they are. And, and those you know, the power of those archetypes mm -hmm. is overwhelming, yeah. you know, just as, as love is overwhelming. And so what I realize is, and I said it to you before, I deeply get that if everybody could have a love map, that a spirit love map that embraced the universe story as its central love, mm -hmm. that would be, you know, transformative. I get it intellectually completely. Mm -hmm. I get it totally that it's true, that it's both science and spirit, that it's all these good things. I'm trying to make space for it in my Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi with Taoist influence <laughs> love map yeah. um, so that I can embrace it as completely as I embrace Ibn Arabi or, you know, uh, Rumi or Hafiz or the people who kind of, Rilke, or the people who put me on fire, yeah. you know, yep. that where there's that fire of not just this is true, but this is a truth that enlivens me. Yes. And so I think that my problem is not recognizing that in addition to being true and true as a story that goes beyond all the traditions and true as a story that unites us all, it's also a story that does put a lot of people on fire, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. And so I'm trying to discover whether in my own religious spiritual love map, mm -hmm. I can find the fire for something that I believe is both true, true good and beautiful, yeah. right? Those three criteria. Right. But I need to allow it to work on me in a way that it hasn't, hasn't, you know, work right. yet. I think it's hugely helpful yeah. what you're saying. Because yeah. I would say there are yeah. millions of yeah. people right. in this um, this way of being right. in the world. Right. Uh, and again, it's partly why we did the religion and ecology work right. Right. and this journey of the universe work. But maybe mm -hmm. one of the links mm -hmm. is the Teardian link. Yes. Yeah. Because um, Teard comes out of Mm -hmm. and yet uh, flourishes in ways beyond the tradition, mm -hmm. but is rooted in a language that's very Christian. Mm -hmm. But the, the people who are in... When Teilhard 
50th anniversary of Teilhard's death, mm-hmm. 55, so 2005 in New York, mm-hmm. we had a thousand people at the UN to celebrate mm-hmm. him and his vision, wow. including 200 from France, mm-hmm. including the former head of the Bus- World Business Council on wow. Sustainable Development, mm-hmm. including Cam Dessou, the head of IMF. Mm-hmm. His influence on French intellectuals, European mm-hmm. intellectuals, profound. And they're among the most cynical people in the world. Yes. Yeah, right. You know, right. truly, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And there were things all over the city. Mm-hmm. You know, John the Divine the next day, mm-hmm. Helen Prejean, you know, dead man walking, she gets up there and she says, we're blowing on the embers of a man named Teilhard. You know, the ripple was incredible. And Brian spoke and so on. So that energy, mm-hmm. and Teilhard was himself mm-hmm. trying to do exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, help us to Breathe see. Breathe fire into the universe story. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And Thomas said we can't do it unless we tell it as a story. Yes. You see? Beautiful. So that's the link. And that's what you have done with Brian Swim. And- you're listening to a TNS Conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. Let us, first of all, thank you. And let us open it up now for questions. And I'd like to ask people to say their names and keep it brief so we can hear from as many people as possible. Yeah. Uh, I'm Wendy Johnson. Yeah. Um, a, a number of years practicing Zen Buddhism and yeah. really happy to be here today. And I love it that Michael just mentioned the love story. Could we hear how you met John Grimm, please? <laughs> <laughs> now that's a great question. Please. <laughs> well... <laughs> Come Sorry back. not to be religious. No, no, of course. It's fresh. Um, I came back from Japan. I went to Fordham. I felt Fordham was a little, the Catholic thing and the theology thing was a little too much. And But Thomas was there. I was thrilled to start studying. This is September. I'm doing my Sanskrit thing with another uh, teacher who's also a graduate student. And... Um, the door opens, small little office. John Grimm blows into the room, <laughs> long beard, cut off shorts, his dog Mindy on this long uh, rope. And he says, John Borelli, do you have a piece of paper and a pencil? I'm going off to the class on religions of <laughs> India. Um, and I need some paper. And I was like, I could breathe. <laughs> I was like, if someone like this is in the program, I can, I can deal with it. And it's also love at first sight. <laughs> Wonderful. Others? Questions? Comments? Yes. Kathy Harris, do you have a daily practice for feeling the fire of what you've been speaking of? Yes, definitely. And yeah. could you speak to what it is? Um, so... I do a number of things, but uh, basically I light, it's, it's pretty complicated, so I'll, I'll just give you the outline. Um, but I light candles um, in the living room. Um, two are incredibly beautiful angels from my grandmother and that kind of thing. And, but, um, and I light them uh, for my husband. For, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> but So I light candles... Um, well, actually, the, the, it's the, for health of body, for peace of mind, for serenity of soul, and joy of spirit. That's oh, the basic beautiful. four candles. And then I light candles for the ancestors, mm-hmm. and then one for 
all those of past generations and future generations, one for those doing the great work right now, and one for the hidden heart of the cosmos, the fire. Mm. And then I pray in the four directions with water. Um, and again, I have uh, um, light and hope from the east, courage and strength from the north, creativity uh, and joy from the west, peacefulness and transformation from the south. And then that's the minimum to begin the day. But then I take incense and go around the house and bless parts of the house. And then I do some qigong and some quiet meditation and so on. Hmm. How long does the whole thing go when you can? It's accordion. <laughs> it can be stretched. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so a minimum uh, would be 20 or 30 minutes probably. Mm. To an hour. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Mm. Other questions? Anna, you must have a question. That burning questions. Uh, so my name is Anna O'Malley, and I uh, identify, I was raised as a Christian, and, and I'm deeply um, drawn toward grounding the love that I resonate with, both in the natural world and, and that Christ consciousness in service. And I'm curious, do you have any, any thoughts on or practices or um, frameworks for infusing this sort of grand, this beautiful narrative mm -hmm. into um, the practical work of shifting consciousness. Certainly. Namely, so the whole idea here is great story, great work. Mm -hmm. Teilhard was all about the loss of energy between the two world wars, existentialism, the collapse of European society, civilization. It's pretty intense. And he was like, we must dynamize human energy. That's his whole point. And Thomas in that lineage, very much so. So what we did with Journey was a film, as you know, uh, the book, but these series of conversations where the scientists, I think, are part of the entry. Mm -hmm. You see, if we listen to them with a spiritual mindset mm -hmm. and they start to talk about these self-organizing dynamic processes, mm -hmm. we can link into a spiritual ecology that's very profound, mm -hmm. very profound. Because all the world's religions are dealing with forms of nature and renewal, return, life, mm -hmm. death, you see, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So now we have universe powers, earth powers to connect up to our yeah. own spiritual consciousness. So that's part of it. But the second part of those conversations are 10 environmentalists, including Penny Livingston, Jim's partner, and uh, what is permaculture? How do the systems of earth instruct us? in growing something healthy. We have Richard Register doing eco-cities. Uh, we have Carl Anthony and Bellevue Rooks doing How Does This Matter to African Americans and two incredible Native Americans. We've got Drew Dellinger doing the arts and poetry and it's so fabulous what he does, you know. So all of this is to say, of course it has to connect to the diversity of the talents and gifts that we can evoke. Um, and even, I mean, Teilhard had this incredible sense of location. And I'm not saying it all has to be elevated. He was like, every part of work is important. It's very Buddhist, too, you know. So I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. True, since you've been invoked several times, have you been reflecting on anything? 
I I would uh, well I, I don't I'm a little bit off on the spot, but I will go to my kind of one of my pet interests, which is the connections between ecology and uh, social justice and cosmology, mm-hmm. and um, and it's it's very t- I'm so glad that you've done this. It's great. I mean I've I've been a huge fan of Mariella for so long, and yet to have this mm-hmm. afternoon to really hear more of her intellectual and spiritual journey and biography is really touching and fantastic and just I'm thinking about a, I just wrote an article on the Poor People's Campaign I'm like I should have asked Mary Evelyn Tucker about the Poor People's <laughs> Campaign but um, I would love to hear any thoughts that, that you might be um, uh, uh, moved to share in terms of how you see um, how you see this connection between racial justice and social justice, and you've already touched on it in, in terms of identity, but I guess kind of, I don't know, I, I'm not articulating the question clearly, but uh, but so much of what we need, you know, I, I'm, so many of us feel that if, if we don't have a movement, we're not gonna make it, you know, in a certain way. And, that, and, and it's hard to even articulate exactly the movement that we need because it connects economics and ecology and social justice and racial justice and gender oppression and dismantling patriarchy with um, you know transcending militarism and brutality and war and all of these you know so it's hard to even begin to articulate but just um, how can new cosmology help us build a world of racial uh, justice and gender justice and and species biodiversity in the next 15 to 50 years before <laughs> everything unravels. Again, it's the crucial question. It is the crucial question. So many of yours are, mm-hmm. Michael. Um, well, it's why we're trying to elevate the MOOCs, these massive open online classes. You know, this is, this is not about us and even these little lectures. It's just if, if we can get to the fire, yeah. if we yeah. can get to the fire, we have the technologies. We have ecological economics, yeah. Richard Norgard, and we have so many amazing ideas and uh-huh. practices already. And this is one of the most creative parts of the country that has them, right? Mm-hmm. So what we, you know, principles, strategies, and tactics is what Thomas used to talk about. We've got lots of strategies and mm-hmm. tactics and brilliance and even funding and so on. But the principles, if we can link these up, and some of the principles rest in this new cosmology. Mm. They, they absolutely rest there. And it's mm. differentiation and subjectivity and communion, you know, respecting all this difference, understanding yeah. interiority and understanding communion. But I will really say, unless we honor the interiority of everything, we won't make it. That's, and in part, one of the things I did want to mention is there's a flourishing of this literature now. Peter Walburn was just up at um, Geography of Hope and at the bookstore, The Hidden Life of Trees. Mm-hmm. David Haskell has a book, The Song of Trees. <laughs> we just had at Yale, Eduardo Cohn, Thinking Like a Forest. These are leading edge ideas, ancient and new filter through a scientific consciousness and a living earth consciousness. So that is what has to break through. We're going to do a small conference to network these people, you know, David Abram and Sensei Earth people like Stephen Harding and, and all of that. You take it for granted. Bioneers takes it for granted. You know, all our relatives. 
Yale hasn't got a clue about it. And I live in a world that is the dead matter world. Yeah. I'm Dick yeah. Jackson. I have done environmental public health and pediatrician. I'm also a member of the FAN with the two of you. And it's a pretty depressing group sometimes. There are 12 <laughs> elements, and it's the nitrogen cycle and the food cycle and <laughs> pandemics and the Ponzi scheme that is our economic system. And uh, I was really taken with your sense of interiority and hope. In medicine, when the patient is really often in bad shape, and that is what has to come before the recovery, the, the crisis, if you will. Um, and you know, we've forgotten so much in medicine about actually taking care of sick people, but often the old docs would know what that course is. And I think we're very close to crisis. Uh, Jim Kunstler says, well, basically the human species is a mistake and don't worry about saving the earth. The earth is gonna shake off the human species the way an old dog shakes off fleas. Um, you know, it's very easy to become desperately pessimistic. And I think this is, this is the medicine that our species needs at this point, that what you've been talking about. I so appreciate that. That's, you know, because it, it, it's literally, we are trying to say it's, it's an offering, it's an antidote. But I, I just love your term, medicine. It's very touching. Um, and... You know, I want to, um, if I could, or you have a question, then I'm going to tell a story or two. Yeah, yeah. Is that all right to conclude? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're good. Yeah, go Diana? Ahead. Well, <clears throat> I feel like this is wonderfully inspiring. I'm going to read the book. I'm just very concerned about democracy and religion, and I'm very aware that in Europe and in developed countries where religion is less prominent and science is more prominent and secular spirituality, so to speak, <laughs> that democracies and everything is much healthier and there's less inequality. I'm very concerned about the split here. You say Yale doesn't get it. Well, we've got people running the country that it's Fox News running the country. Yeah. Alex, the, I mean, <clears throat> what effect can this story have on people that are denying evolution and yeah. climate change. I mean, we're kind of leaving out the country we're living in in this whole two hours, and it's not a fault, but I just, I'm so aware yeah. that we are in a country that's different because it's so religious, and there's a book called Fantasyland that says the reason how America went haywire, it's because when you're so religious that your worldview is denying science, you're prey to all kinds of conspiracy thinking, and Mm -hmm. Alex and Jones and everything that we've got. Yeah. So this feels, hey, if Yale doesn't get it, what about the rest of the Christians or the other Christians in the country? Well, the government. There's, there's a couple things here, and thank you for that question. When I say <coughs> Yale doesn't get it, I, I and we both share Yale um, in our background. Yeah. So what I'm saying is excellence is measured in different standards and categories that are silo thinking, disciplinolatry, tenure for publications, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also this sensibility that the students get this in a big way, that we're part of a living universe, we're part of living Earth systems. It just isn't dead. Therefore, we can't exploit it and but destroy it. My question it. is more about the rest of the country, not yeah. you. <laughs> no, no, I understand. Just wanted to clarify that part. And, you know... <clears throat> As I've said, I was hugely political in the 60s. And we are going through 
Uh, we're doing this work <laughs> to respond to those questions, but we are not going to fix those questions for sure. Um, because we're trying to, to really provide something that's a healing vision for massive fragmentation, for massive alienation that is expressing itself now, but it's been present our whole lifetime. White supremacy has been present our whole lifetime and way, way beyond. Um, so I feel, and in part, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I don't want our minds and energy to get so wrapped up in the political disaster that we're experiencing mm -hmm. that we lose these longer-term questions Absolutely. and thoughts. That's my point. Absolutely. And if we do, we collapse into despair, you yeah. see? But every society has had to live through very intense things. So we need long-term vision of change. We have the short-term visions over and over again. And, and the pessimists who are part of our fan project, these are some of the greatest, the best, Paul Ehrlich among them, you know, fantastic. But we need to include other music in this symphony. And if we don't get it up to a symphony, it's going to be a cacophony of tragedy. And we don't need that. And it's not, it doesn't have to be self-fulfilling, you see? So a science-based ecology is necessary but not sufficient. And the scientists who are stepping up at this moment out of AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science, now led by Roy Holt, who was a politician from, he's a physicist and a congressman from New Jersey, has opened up the space that has never been there before for scientists to engage in public discussion on these issues. Because the other part of these institutions that we share are there's no public advocacy. There is no public advocacy in these universities. But what I'm saying is the scientific mentality is you get your NSF grants, you do your objective research, you get your labs and your students, but you do not say that your research on air pollution around the world is so massively horrendous that we've got to do something. So science and policy are way divided. This is a problem. You see what I mean? So it's multiple, but the, the breakdown and breakthrough that is happening is astonishing. We've had, you had it in California with the AAAS here demonstrating down at the big conference center. We had it in, they were in Boston too. They're running for office. It's first time. It's fabulous. Yeah. There, I'd love to just ask, there are a few other younger people in yeah. the room that we haven't heard from. I just want to open the space in case either of the two of you, I'm seeing you there, has anything you'd like to say or question? Yeah. Sure, yeah, I could ask something. Um, yeah. You mentioned that there's a rise of spiritual ecology happening right now in our time on this planet. I'm curious if you see this sort of secularization of wisdom to be necessary to shift our consciousness so we could have a more um, mutually beneficial relationship to Earth, and where does the journey of the universe particularly fit within that, I guess? Yeah, so, and so Steve Costa, who's sitting right here, who ran Point Reyes Bookstore with his wife and so on, um, we just had a meeting this morning. I don't know if you want to say anything about it, but yeah, so 
Why don't we just have Steve? Yeah, at a very practical level, the Black Mountain Circle, which is a nonprofit, um, is undertaking a major initiative in documenting over the course of the next six months um, best practices here in Northern California, identifying leaders, um, programs, um, teachers who are focusing their work on primarily young people, high school through millennials. And our intent is to create a Northern California collaborative in which we can begin to encourage greater communication, networking, shared um, experiences. And so we're in the middle of, or the beginning of embarking upon this research. And I'm hoping by the end of the year, we're gonna be convening groups of uh, teachers and practitioners uh, around this um, around this growing movement. Um, and in light of the fact that Northern California is such an epicenter for spiritual ecology, we just think that there needs to be some greater connection uh, made um, mm -hmm. with folks that are out there mm -hmm. doing practical, important <coughs> work. Um, so. And Caliopea Foundation has provided mm -hmm. spiritual ecology fellowships, right? So anyway, this is very exciting. I'm so glad you're here. Um, thank you, Steve. Did you want to? Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming. It's been amazing yes, to thank you. hear everything you've had to share. Um, I'm curious a little bit about what role you see in, we've talked a lot about sort of a personal experience of religious traditions and how that personalizes this sense of the universe story and, the, and why we should care about mm -hmm. all of these things. And I'm curious what you think about the role of personal experiences with nature as well, because mm -hmm. I feel like we live in a society that's increasingly urbanized and, you know, not just in America, but around the world, and people are not necessarily interacting with the natural world on as direct and daily basis as they once did. And so how do you see increasing people's, or how do you see that playing out and, and getting people fired up about all these questions? Right. That you're talking Great about? question. Thank you for both of these questions. And I think spiritual ecology will also be working in that space. And what Wendy Johnson's done with edible communities and teachers, mm -hmm. getting them to think about gardening. I mean, and TPL, Trust for Public Land, does a right. lot with public space, of course, in cities and gardening. Um, so it's a very important question. Um, and while I hesitate to go to any technological solution, but I don't think we can out we can rule out that the films we now have about understanding some of nature's processes are quite extraordinary. And I think if we can meld that with the affect, the knowledge and the affect coming together, and that if we can open up the space for all of us, not just young people, to say, to, to honor and embody wonder, that's the most important thing. And I mean, you're in one of the most beautiful parts of the world and just driving down here was like such a gift, you know? So if we activate wonder, that's an energy that is continually replenishing itself. Um, so opening that up, and again, see, some science teachers have said to me, I, can't, I love this film, I can't talk about wonder in my classroom. You see? We have, that's a mentality that the next generation is breaking through. Please, you know, like, of course we can. But wonder, awe, and beauty are the most regenerative energies we have to do this work. So, yeah. James. 
And just building on that, I, I had some curiosity about your thinking around the role of the arts and artists, and yeah. where do they fit into this? Oh, huge. This? Yeah. And what, what are you seeing maybe is happening that's contributing, and what's, what could be happening yeah. on that level? Yeah, no, that's great. Like connecting these, that, those, the community of the scientists and the activists. Totally, totally. And that's why we did an interview with Drew, you see, too. Um, on the arts and on poetry and so on. So I think poetry, music, sculpture, painting, and so on, it's just, and a lot of it's exploding. You know, we were just at MoMA in New York and last week, and there's some pretty cool stuff that is really bringing in the environment. You know, and they're using technology to do it. It's so amazing. It's really amazing. We have an oratorio on Journey of the Universe right now. It's called Emerging, uh, the Emerging Universe, and that's been done in Vermont. It's been mm -hmm. done in, um, at a huge Jesuit conference last summer to be done at the big history conference in Villanova, and that's uh, an offering. Paul Winter, you know, has been doing this forever, as we yeah. mentioned. It's winter solstice. He's creating that space. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So, yes, yes, and more yes, because that's what people feel. Last question for you, and then I have two final things. Yes. I, I have a big concern about um, the wonder and the awe and technology. <laughs> Can you help me with that? Well, I share that hugely. Um, and I didn't grow up with television. We don't have television. I don't watch a lot of movies, as we were discussing earlier. I'm very averse to shudder with violence, you know, and I've tried actually consciously to keep that out of my life so as to keep a, a, a certain type of, I'm not saying it's pure and unadulterated, but to keep alive a genuine wonder and a genuine awe. But as I've just said, you know, I, I wanted to mention this film on Lynn Margulis that's just coming out on symbiosis on the cooperative universe. And, you know, she's the one with James Lovelock who came up with the Gaia hypothesis. But her work was all about symbiosis and cooperation. And this film is fabulous. So, you know, technology can serve us. And she's making a huge, I'll tell you more later, but she's making a huge link here overtly to a neo-Darwin viewpoint that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog competitive universe, and she's saying, no, and look at this symbiosis. So, everything in balance. I guess I'm more concerned with mind-brain changing okay. through self-active. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's, it's very real. It comes up at almost every presentation I do, you know, this question of nature and, um, and so on. Um, I think the biggest problem is um, no space for quiet or reflection. That people don't even know how to be quiet. Yeah. And we're all part of it. You know, the onslaught of emails is ever-present. and So I don't have an answer, right? But we do have many traditions which have spiritual practices which are also present. And people are flocking to this. Um, our young people are just um, frantic for what I think spiritual ecology can offer, is this space of reflection and connection. 
it's, we need the reflection, but we need the connection in a new and fresh way. I think we can do this. I think we can do it. Mm. Two final questions. One, a specific one, going back to our earlier conversation. In the journey of the universe, there's a place where you touch on the fact that if, if it had been one degree less or one degree more, it would have either exploded or collapsed back on itself. And it struck me when I read that, that in a certain way you were tiptoeing around the anthropic principle issue, which, as many people know, is the theory that the universe appears to have been perfectly designed uh, for life and potentially even for human life mm -hmm. as the capacity for the university, uh, universe to look back on mm -hmm. itself, as mm -hmm. Thomas Berry originally said. Um, and so then we have uh, Stephen Hawking and the other physicists who, from my point of view, and he just died and I think he's extraordinary, but they couldn't stand the anthropic principle. And so almost in response, they had to invent the multiverse, mm -hmm. which was the theory that, no, it's not possible that the universe was designed to support life. So it must just be one random universe out of 10 zillion mm -hmm. that happened to mm -hmm. do that. Right. So my point of view is, they haven't proven the multiverse, and the, the universe that we can see mm -hmm. seems to be designed to support life. Mm -hmm. And so, going back to your point about you know, the passion to merge, which mm -hmm. you have in here, isn't it possible that the living universe that we can see is based on the principle of love, which is you know, the passion to, to create? And so, if we see not only, because you were talking in the book, about you know the hypothesis that the Earth is a living system. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that you touch on the possibility that the universe is in some sense a living system, but um, Dwayne Elgin and others, as you know, are talking about, and you said some of your students uh, see, the universe not as an inert system, but as a, as, as a living system, which I would add, others do too, perhaps based on love as central. So I'm just curious where you stand on that question of the anthropic principle of the existing universe versus the multiverse. I can imagine you didn't want to get into it because it's a controversial area, but I'm curious whether you've thought about it. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And in the film, we do the balloon, which mm. it would explode or collapse. You know? right. And we also put in Freeman Dyson, who oh, okay. said the universe must have known we were coming. Okay. Which Beautiful. is a strong anthropic yeah. principle. Right. So, yes, we did put that in. Yes, some scientists are uncomfortable with mm -hmm. it. And yes, some scientists are fine with it. Because, mm -hmm. as you've used that beautiful term, there's a fine-tuning right. of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and coming back to the living, mm -hmm. we can all say at this point, the living Earth systems mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so on. And certainly, this is the point, where does the fire rest? Right. And Teilhard says, discover the fire for the next mm -hmm. time. The fire is there from the beginning, right. the great flaring forth. Mm -hmm. So the sense of the interiority mm -hmm. of matter mm -hmm. differentiating over time, mm -hmm. complexifying to greater differentiation and greater consciousness, that's the Teilhardian vision. Mm -hmm. That's cosmogenesis, mm -hmm. which our recent ancestors had no idea about. Mm -hmm. That's what's so thrilling. So the sense that the, the whole universe mm -hmm. is, has interiority and mm -hmm. complexification and emergence and mm -hmm. self-organizing mm -hmm. dynamics, we can spend the rest of our lives connecting to that spiritually mm -hmm. and being lit up by it. So, 
that is, I think, one of our great tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and Brian has a great series, by the way, called The Cosmological Powers, mm -hmm. where he relates transformation and so on to explosion mm -hmm. of stars or mm -hmm. formation of galaxies. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we spent a semester at Princeton teaching, and the, that's where a lot of this galaxy formation star mm -hmm. is going on. Fantastic lecture from one of the leading scientists mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. saying, we don't really know mm -hmm. how galaxies emerge. Oh. And that's where mm -hmm. we can begin, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, our humble mm -hmm. investigation of this mm -hmm. amazing process. Mm -hmm. So coming back for a final question to your spiritual biography, uh, what does the next chapter in Mary Evelyn Tucker's spiritual biography look like? Where, where are you going? Well, I actually now want to write a few small books, mm -hmm. okay, not academic books, mm -hmm. and along the line of spiritual biography. Mm -hmm. um, and one I definitely want to make available Confucianism, you know, mm -hmm. on a richer way that takes mm -hmm. that out of its text and tradition. One, I want to actually write letters um, to both family and friends. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, letters to a young poet real mm -hmm. quick just had right. such an impact. Yeah. So letters, that's a genre yeah. we've lost and encourage letters. Um, and another one might be I've had it in my mind is oases mm -hmm. and places I've been grateful to travel to, mm -hmm. the Silk Road and mm -hmm. elsewhere, and just try and capture some of those mm -hmm. place-based but spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's a little, and actually, just to conclude your generous question, is mm -hmm. um, I very much want to speak with and for women. Mm -hmm. Really, really want that these voices, you know, to emerge. And mm -hmm. especially because I know as an academic woman, my voice, as, as in here, it's always very much buried. Mm -hmm. So I just want to help these voices to emerge. Mary Evelyn Tucker, senior lecturer and research scholar at Yale, co-author with Brian Swim of The Journey of the Universe and probably 20 other books and hundreds of articles. And really um, a formative force in uh, uh, spiritual ecology and our collective prayer that um, the journey of the universe helps us find our way home. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Mary Evelyn Tucker and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>